I'm going to go ahead and pray for the sermon. At this point, it is my great privilege to preach to you today, brothers and sisters, family of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be present with us. May only the things you want us to hear be heard. Use me, a broken vessel. May the power of your spirit be preeminent. Will you bless us and convict us with your powerful word today? Will you help us to leave behind the deeds of darkness and embrace the light? Will you give us power and joy to face tomorrow? Through the preaching of your word today, in Jesus' name, amen. First John chapter 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, but what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous, and the one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. Now, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and their sister. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belongs to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. 
Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, then we have confidence before God, and we receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands live in, lives in him and he in them, and this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I find this passage frightening. In thinking about what our church needs to hear, indeed what I needed to hear, I kept gravitating to this passage, which is a curiosity because I find it frightening. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly why, except that I trust and believe that the Spirit must have wanted this for our congregation, and the more I've studied it, the more convinced I am the Spirit has something to teach us. In fact, the Spirit may want us to consider the entire book of 1 John because it is largely a pastoral letter written to a wounded, confused, betrayed, and struggling church. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't think we're so wounded and confused and betrayed. I certainly don't think we're betrayed. But I do think that we are at a liminal moment and we are under great stress. And under great stress, as we all know, those are the perfect conditions for all sorts of havoc to happen. All sorts of temptations to creep in. All of the problems, wounds, and confusions that John's church were suffering, it's ripe for that sort of thing to happen here. We don't want that to be us. As the great evangelical London preacher uh, John Stott has written about this book, John evidently loves the people that were committed to his care. He calls them dear children. He calls them dear friends. He longs to protect them from both error and evil and to see them firmly established in faith and love and holiness. He has no new doctrines for them, but on the contrary, he appeals to them to remember what they already know, have, and are wise words, and may it be so with us today. And that does bring us to a central question to which we will return. Who are we exactly? We will get there. Hang with me. But this passage will help us get there. We can't simply jump there, though, or we're going to miss what John is trying to communicate to us. So let me map this out for you. I'm going to begin by surveying the background of this book and how many of the challenges facing John's congregation bear some resemblance to our own. Second, I'm going to look at the way he rolls out the problems in a very almost contradictory fashion. It is not contradictory. A lot of ink has been spilt proving this is not contradictory. But he's using a kind of hyperbolic speech structure to emphasize certain things of importance and to help us embrace some mystery that we have to understand in order to receive a kind of remedy or, to, or a series of remedies that he proposes. And then the last thing is, there is one underlying remedy that makes all the other remedies possible. And if we have the courage to embrace it, it will save us. So to summarize these points, the ancient church's problems are our problems. The ancient church's remedies are our remedies, and there is a final remedy that enables all the others. The problems. First, we have to remember that scholars and church leaders since, oh, Augustine and before, for thousands of years, literally now, have made a very, very strong case that the writer of this letter is, in fact, the Apostle John, the John, the son of Zebedee, who's the author of the gospel 
the fisherman that Jesus called out from his fish to make him a fisher of men. He felt he was also the disciple that Jesus loved. He expresses that in his own gospel, that he felt the intimacy and care of Jesus. It's not that Jesus didn't love anybody else. It's that John felt that love acutely, and it changed him. He couldn't help but express it. He literally reclined against Jesus at the Last Supper. The Scripture specifically says that. He was so comfortable, so intimate, so at home with Jesus that their bodies could touch without any threat, without any suspicion, but with nothing but care. Jesus says in the very first words of his letter, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. That's how he starts this letter. This is the John who ran to the tomb, saw empty grave clothes. This is the John who saw Jesus no less than three other times after that, one of which where he was floating in a boat, wondering where Jesus had gone to, etc. and they see him on the shore. Jesus says, come to the shore. Peter dives in, swims to him. They're all desperate to get to him. They're so happy. And Jesus says, let me make you some breakfast, right? He attends to the physical needs in a miraculous way. You see the theme here? Jesus wasn't an esoteric idea to John. He was his best friend and his Lord at the same time. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That's the opening to the Gospel of John. What does he go on to say? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Became flesh and dwelt among us you and me. So John not only knew Jesus in the flesh, but he felt the love of Jesus in the flesh, and he was touched in heart and body by who Jesus was and is, and that touch informed everything about his faith. But John's precious church was troubled, and they had not experienced that same touch in the same way that he had. Why were they troubled? Now, we're not entirely sure of the entire picture here, but we know this much. There were people in the congregation that John was attending to that were teaching heretical ideas. We get some hint of what those ideas are, and, and we know that they co-opted the very heart of the gospel, the idea that Jesus was God. That undid everything else. And so this wonderful community he had was broken, and he's writing to the remnant, the people who are left over who dare to be faithful and did not follow the heretics out of the church. He says, they were discouraged. And on top of all that, they might be executed or imprisoned or hauled away for their faith. Can you imagine how hopeless and adrift that church felt? Can you imagine how everything looked like the promises were just broken to them? The faith of those early Christians, even unto death, is something we must never forget. In the face of all manner of discouragement, disappointment, and slim odds of success, they had extraordinary faith. And every moment they must have clung to the promises of Jesus at his ascension. When he left them, he said, I leave you my Holy Spirit as a comforter, a reminder of all that he had taught them, and that he would be with them always. He would be with them always, even to the end of the age. You'll see in our reading, the very end of our reading, John remembers that. 
We know this by the Spirit He has given us. So you see all these connections with the Gospel of John, and we know a bit about the heresies that he was fighting. Simon Kistemacher is a church historian and theologian, taught at Reformed Theological Seminary for years. He believes and makes an excellent case these were Gnostic heresies. Very common heresy in the time of the early church. What did Gnostics think? Well, it was complicated, and it went for a long time, and it did a lot of destruction, but here's a few of the relevant things. They thought knowledge was more important than anything else. And they believed they had a special knowledge. And so they felt, well, they were distanced from uninitiated Christians. And they thought that matter was evil. Your body, this wood, your Christmas presents, your car, your family, your job, all of that was really evil. A kind of necessary evil you had to traipse through, but your job in life was to pursue spirit and leave behind matter. The world is evil, and therefore because it's evil, God couldn't have created the world. The Gnostics, in fact, believed that the God of the Old Testament wasn't God. It was a lesser God who created the world. But the true God was fighting with the God of the Old Testament. And so, you can see how convoluted this gets, any teaching of the incarnation of Jesus was completely unacceptable. God can't have anything to do with matter because matter is evil. So there can't be any resurrection of the body either. Not for Jesus, not for you, not for me. So you see, the only thing that mattered to the Gnostics was something you could never touch. And John wasn't going to take that sitting down. There's good evidence that John was particularly concerned about a Gnostic teacher named Serenthus. We don't know this for sure, but it's likely because of things we heard John was said to have said. Polycarp, his disciple, who did write books, tells stories of John preaching against Serenthus. He believed that conveniently God descended on this human Jesus at the, at the uh, baptism, and then right before he died, God went away, and God died like a human. Jesus died like a human, and there were varieties of belief like that, that maybe he just appeared to die because God can't die, okay? So this idea of appearance or some kind of bait and switch, all of these kind of Gnostic ideas, and several of them floating around in this church. There was a tremendous cultural pressure to believe it. Why? Because Christianity is the first religion on the scene that ever said, guess what? God is in his heaven, and God is on his earth, and God can be in your heart, and this world matters. It matters in a way that no religion had ever really articulated, because Jesus became matter. And this is what John is unwilling to let go of. Why? Because he leaned against Jesus, because Jesus touched him, because Jesus loved him, and Jesus made him breakfast. These things matter. A watered-down Jesus who wasn't really God, maybe appeared to be God, didn't really die. You can imagine how this made him feel and how personal it was. Jesus who said to John at his direst moment, would you please take care of my mother? <laughs> That's not an ethereal God of some kind of Gnostic idea. So he refused this stripped-out, watered-down Jesus. He claimed the Lord whose eyes he had seen and whose hands he had touched. That's the opening of the letter. Now, how was he supposed to convey that intimacy to this flock who had not seen and had not touched Jesus? They were a generation after. How is he going to convey all that intensity, all that truth, all that importance? Well, by the Spirit's help, of course. But he would also emphasize to them that when they love God and love each other, 
they are hearkening back to what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. He was asked, it's recorded three different times in the gospel, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the God, Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two things are the greatest commandment. So, Jesus, so John reminds them, when they love God and each other, they're fulfilling that commandment, and they are embodying Christ, the risen Christ, in the world. John echoes this at the end of our passage, if you see those last few verses. Now, the Gnostic heresies created all kinds of problems. There was problems with idolatry. We know that through the rest of the book. There's breaking of fellowship and division. We know that they had, these heresies had divided them, and they were ceasing to forgive each other. We know a heresy that's subsequently been called antinomianism was starting to creep in. It wasn't called then that then, but it is now. And that's kind of a Christian-y heresy in that it says, yeah, grace is wonderful. It covers all our sins, right? True. So go on sinning. Don't worry about the sin thing. Don't stress yourself out. It's all covered. That's antinomianism. That's against the law. That's as if to say the law never mattered. That was, the law was given before God became a Christian, right? But God is the same. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The song we sang, he was there at the beginning. He didn't make a mistake. The law, righteousness, is an expression of his character. He knew, as every good father knows, that we weren't going to be able to keep the law perfectly. So what did he do? Like every good father, he sacrificed everything to make sure you stay secure, that you're forgiven. He pursued you. So if the spiritual is the only thing of value, the body doesn't matter. That's what the Gnostics said. Your body is of little consequence. Go ahead and, and live as you like because it's not the real deal, like spirit or knowledge is. It's just bad theology, and it trivializes away Jesus' body and his material existence, and so that means it trivializes away our bodies and our material existence. This helps us understand this direct convicting words that we see in the middle of verses of the chapter, or sorry, of the passage. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or know him. Those are strong words because, well, I still continue to sin. I had to read that about six times. And I said, Lord, really? Is this like a works righteousness thing that pops up? And that, that's where my heart goes, right? Because my heart is always going to tell me I have to do, I have to earn my way into this thing, right? But even in the very same book, I want to remind you, if you go back, if you have brought your Bible, go back to 1 John chapter 1, the very beginning of this same letter. What's the first thing he tells you? If you say that you're a sinner, you're a liar. You say you're not a sinner, you're a liar. That's what he says. If anyone claims to be without sin, they're a liar. You see, what John was fighting was a whole host of complicated heresies. There are those who said, well, body doesn't matter, so you can't be a sinner, because the only thing that counts is this spirit knowledge thing, right? There are people in there saying, well, you can go ahead and sin because grace covers it, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't matter how you live, right? And he's saying, no, you are a sinner, and guess what? You shouldn't live like one. You shouldn't live like one. There's only, and so 
this is tough, right? We're halfway through the passage, and we're like, what sort of hope do we have? He's countered all of these, these uh, heresies, right? But what sort of hope are we left with? John says that all these heresies are false and destructive. We don't sin that grace might abound because Jesus came to fight and destroy the regime of sin and death. Maybe one thing that can help us in understanding this passage, it's not just all about our balance sheet, how good or bad we are. It's about a battle between good and evil that has been waging since before we were on the scene. And yes, we're guilty. And yes, we're implicated. And yes, we need to confess. Absolutely. But it's bigger than us. We died to sin, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, meaning that our new spiritual birth in Christ reorients us towards the God of life and His good character. He says in Romans chapter 7, I do what I don't want to do. It's a famous chapter where he's fighting with his own, this internal struggle, forces within him, right? Paul just outlines it. This is what the Christian life is like. You know what's different? He doesn't want to do those things. I do what I don't want to do. So yes, sin abides. You continue to do the things that you shouldn't be doing. The difference is maybe you don't want to be doing them. And if you don't want to, you cultivate that desire. Cultivate that desire to not do the wrong thing. If you are habitually doing the wrong thing, put it to death. Ask for Jesus to put it to death. Claim the power of the Spirit to put it to death. Want what the Father wants. And here's the beauty of reformational theology. Here's the beauty of grace. When you confess your sins, that's not a moment of defeat. That is gaining ground. Every confession is gaining ground. Jesus is not surprised that you sinned this week. But what he's just absolutely dying for you to see is that he's forgiven you. And he has done more than forgiven you, but he has given you a life to live into How do you live into this life? How do you live righteously? The metaphor that John gives us, and I think this is a key to helping us, this is a practical help, is to see God as our Father. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. God the Father says to us, in this family, we don't sin. That's not who we are. As every parent knows, their child is going to sin and be inconsistent, but you'll forgive them, love them still, and make them secure. And didn't he do that for us? John's remedy, love each other. Do you notice that he doesn't say, okay, so discipline yourself, try harder, identify three things you need to change in your life, etc. What does he say? He says, love each other. That's his primary remedy. Now, that sounds trite, right? Love is the answer or something. But I don't think any other concept on earth has been so trivialized and co-opted and made shallow. It is the deepest thing around. It's not, don't judge me and I won't judge you. Real love, real love is a person, a holy God. Love is hard. It demands self-sacrifice. It has hard choices and enormous amounts of humility. 
humbled even under death on a cross. That's the example set before us. That's what love is. It's not typically a scenario where everybody just gets along and is nice to each other, although we certainly want that. That's barely the beginning. More typically, it's a fight against darkness, against vengeance, against a world that at once says this world is all there is and matter doesn't matter very much, communities don't matter very much, your ties don't matter very much, this building doesn't matter very much, your jobs, your station in life, none of these things matter. John tells us, no, exactly the opposite. It all matters. If it didn't matter, we wouldn't be here. Jesus would take us to glory. It matters now. You have something to do here. That all things may be reconciled to Himself. All things in heaven, all things on earth. We're just saying that. All things. It doesn't say your souls. It says all things. It's bigger. Our love is a flag flown in the face of all that meaningless that cries, yes, meaning exists. It's not dependent on me. I don't know why I've been loved, but I'm grateful, and so can you be loved. It's a response to a miracle. How great is the love of the Father that He's shown us that we should be called the children of God. We fight for each other when we fight for real, loving, and true relationships. So the remedy that He proposes for sin is not quite what we'd expect. His answer is to enact a deep, courageous, sacrificial love for others, especially those in the church as a means of reminding ourselves that we're not the same, but we're God's children. He even says explicitly, as if to fight like some disembodied Gnosticism that would excuse uh, disregarding the body or real presence or real material needs, what does he say? He says, go sit with people, really be with them in their brokenness, sorrow, and need, and shake hands and hug them, and dare I say, come to church, be on time, don't dash out early. Well, maybe he doesn't quite say all those things, but I think we can imagine that. Do you hear Dietrich Bonhoeffer's words? Bonhoeffer, who went to death for a righteous cause, right? Sin demands to have a sin by himself. That's what sin wants. Sin demands a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive the power of sin will be over him, and the more deeply he becomes involved in it, and the more disastrous his isolation. John's primary remedy here for sin is to love God and love someone else. Isn't that mind-blowing? It takes us back to his greatest commandment, where we realize that the rule love your God and love your neighbor as yourself, is also the remedy. Are you facing temptations? Are you facing discouragement, depression? Repent and cry out to God for help and grace. Yes, absolutely, you should do that. But then get up off your knees and go find someone else to help, to pray for, to give to, to extend yourself to. I promise you, your soul will be restored. That is a very practical bit of advice. And if you need names of people who are hurting and need help, please come speak to any church leader here. We will be glad to give you a long list, and we'll probably be on it. But it's more than prayer. It's that material existence, your body, your time, your money. John specifically says, give yourself physically and financially. You see someone in need? In the most dramatic terms, how could the love of God be in them if you don't give them all your money? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm very convicted by all this. But friends, I've been in ADCC for 19 years. I've been on the session for most of that time, and our budget is in the worst spot it has ever been, as far as I can tell, as far as giving. 
I believe God's going to pull us through. We've been through tough patches before. But friends, why are we not giving? Now, I know why we're not giving. Because we don't have any money, <laughs> right? Guess what? That's no excuse. That's no excuse. Jesus gave everything. John even says, lay down your life for your brothers and sisters. Lay down your life. This is the part of the sermon where I stop. I'm too convicted to keep preaching. I, I, I don't know what that means exactly. But I know that it's more than what I'm doing. The church, the material, the physical, the embodied church is the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus' restoration on earth. And it's not the end of the game. Jesus will come back. But we are his workmanship, created to do good works. That's what we're created for. We are part of the family, and that family is what righteousness is, what it's about. So I've given you some practical remedies to love, give, fight temptations, keep working on that sin nature, deal with it for sure. But most of those remedies are going to fall flat if we don't grasp a central truth. And this is the last point. We need to know who we are. We need to feel known. A good friend of mine just recently said to me, I can mess, I, I, I can accept the fact that I'm a sinner, that I mess things up, that I make mistakes, but the main thing I want, you, want is to be known. I want you to know, even if I've hurt you, what my intention was, where my heart was. We all want that. I was once in China and was, had the great opportunity to meet a pastor in the underground church there. He had grown up a product of the secular atheist establishment there. He had never known Jesus as an adult, and, and, and he'd tried Buddhism. He'd tried any number of other uh, religions, and uh, so a missionary gave him a Bible. He sat down. He tells me this. He told me this himself. He locked himself in a room, his bedroom, for a week, and his wife brought him, like, stuff <laughs> to eat, and he read the entire Bible in one week. And he said, and I got to the end of it, and I was a Christian. I was astonished by the story, and I said to him, well, was there any particular verse where you felt like it shifted for you? I'm trying to imagine what that would be, right? I can imagine verses of conviction. I can imagine verses of grace. I can imagine all kinds of things, amazing stories, David and Goliath. Who, who, what, what? He says, oh, yes, yes, I know exactly what verse it was. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, <laughs> the very first verse in the Bible. And I kind of laughed, and he was taken back by the laughter, and I said, well, it's the first one. He says, yeah. So, well, okay, so what was it about that verse? He says, nobody in all my life had ever told me that I had a creator. We want to be known. And friends, you are known. That's the gospel. You are known, and you are loved, and your Creator has gone to the furthest extent possible to rescue you from the family of darkness. One of the most heinous things that has been happening lately in the war in Ukraine is Ukrainian children are being stolen away to Russia and being taught that they were Russians all along. They were never Ukrainians, and they mustn't speak Ukrainian. And this sort of thing has happened through genocidal situations for many, many years. 
over many centuries. It's illegal and all that, but it's horrifying. You can be abducted into an ar a dark kingdom. You can be stolen away. You can be deceived. You can walk away on your own power from the family that loves you. Don't let that happen. God reaches out to you, extends his invitation, has gone to every length for you. Throughout 1 John, this is how we know. How do we know? This is how we know. How do we know? This is how we know. Your creator, your father, knows your heart, your intention. How do you know you're his child? He loves you in spite of your failings. What's better than all that? He's making you into something better. You are his concern, his delight, his project. John says it right here. We don't know what we will be, but he does. He knows what he was getting into when he started this project, so live like it. Live that you are a child of the living God. Do you know what it's like to love righteousness, to love what's holy? If you don't, you need to ask yourself if you've really embraced that identity as a son or daughter of God. We are in his family, and our family is about light. We love what he loves. I love that moment in the first verse, how great is the love of the Father. In Greek, that phrase that expresses that, it's only used six times in the New Testament. Every single time, it's a mark of absolute astonishment. How great is the love of the Father. And then as if to top it off, in the face of a Gnostic heresy, they might say, oh, well, it only appears to be this way, right? He says, and that's what we are. And that's what we are. It's a miracle. God doesn't just label us children. He declares us his children, and he makes us his children. Now, my heart is not only lacking faith, and it's inconsistent, but it's often sad, and sometimes it's often sad for good reasons. And for me, one of the great challenges of the Christian life is to accept that these are the emotional contours of the Christian life. There will be great joy, and there will be great sorrow. And Jesus told us it would be like this. There would be up and ups and downs. But that's because we're in a fight, in the battle for the whole of the cosmos, just as He is. If I were not a Christian, I think I would despair most of the time, but I do not despair, and neither should you, because here is the thing. Even if you meet the criteria of the one who sins, even if you meet the criteria of the one who doesn't love God enough, even if a lot of chapter 3 seems to talk about you, go back to chapter 1 and remember that he's not surprised, and then skip ahead back to the end of chapter 3 and remember this. It's all gain. God is greater than my own heart. So even if I can't fully emotionally embrace it, even if I have that day where I just think, gosh, I just don't know if I can do this. God says, I'm bigger than that. I'm greater than your heart. But there's so much benefit if you can walk in my ways. You will have confidence like you have never known. That's why righteousness is worth pursuing, because we're in His family and we will be like Him, and we get something from that. We experience what life is as it should be. How do we know? Last verse. This is how we know He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gives us. Christian Wyman is one of my favorite poets. He wrote a book, a small poem I want to 
to close with here, and then leave you with one last thought after. It's called A Small Prayer in a Hard Wind. It sort of describes my life. It may be a bit like our church. As through a long-abandoned, half-standing house, only someone lost could find, which with its painless windows and sagging crossbeams and a hundred crevices in which a hundred creatures hoard and nest, it seems both a ghost of the life that happened there and the living spirit of this wasted place, wind seeks and sings every wound in the wood that is open enough to receive it. Shatter me, God, into my thousand sounds. Do you know the Keith Green song? Rushing wind blow through this temple, blowing out the dust within. That's what he's talking about. We're still God's temple no matter how old and decrepit, no matter how discouraged, no matter how we flawed. We know this by the spirit that he gave us. So let's heed the greatest commandment. Let's run to our Father with hopes and fears and disappointments and weaknesses and sins and confessions and questions. Let's tell Him that we're going to do better and we're going to try to do better and will you help us do better and let's do it every day. Let's feel His strong embrace and let's cling to Him with all our strength. And don't lose sight of this. John says this all the time, all throughout the book. Look around at your brothers and sisters doing the same thing and love your family as much as you have been loved by your Father. Amen.